as we start Holy Week, we're going to read a very familiar passage probably for our Palm Sunday passage. It comes from Mark chapter 11. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And they untied it, and some of the people standing there did ask, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Father God, this morning as we look at that passage, as we begin to unpack it and figure out what you would be saying to us this morning and what this story would be saying to the world, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand it in greater depth and you'd help us to understand what it means to us as individuals, as a church, and as your people. So, Father, we thank you for this Palm Sunday. We do acknowledge you as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And, Father, we pray that you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. there's one question that will be interesting to answer this morning, it's just simply this question, what do you want? I've always been intrigued that the crowds that line this parade route are so enthusiastic in their worship on Monday or Sunday, and yet in less than a week they will turn completely against Jesus. On Sunday they welcome a new king, they put branches out, they put their cloaks out, they, they sing all the praises from the Old Testament songs. And yet in less than a week, they will be yelling, crucify him. And as I think about why the sudden turn, I think it has an awful lot to do with what they thought Jesus would do, who they saw him to be, and most important, what they wanted him to do. And I kind of wonder sometimes, do we know, even for ourselves, what is it that we want Jesus to do? Well, one way to figure that out is simply this. What did you pray for last week? Because obviously what you were asking for is what you want him to do. So what did we want? Answers? Results? Peace? Security? If you had a quiet time with God when you were reading your Bible, what did you want out of that? Did you want closeness or knowledge or some kind of experience? If you ever talk to your friends about God, if you ever kind of just say that they should believe in God, what reason do you give them? That they could have freedom from guilt or freedom from shame, that they could have peace in the midst of uncertainty? And in this day and age, that's not a small thing to have. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, my parents would go away on a trip somewhere, and when they came back, they'd often bring a small gift. And you know, I was a pretty miserable kid, and I think often I look forward to the gift more than I look forward to them coming back. 
And I kind of think that's how it was for almost everybody on that first Palm Sunday. They were more looking forward to what God would give them than they were looking forward to God coming in the first place. I think everybody on that first uh, Palm Sunday had an agenda of some sort. Everyone had something that they wanted God to do for them. And let's just take a quick look at some of them, and then let's try and think about it for ourselves. The first one is the leaders. I think they just wanted the status quo. They wanted nothing to change. John says, one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, he said to them. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. In other words, he was saying, this man's life is expendable if it keeps the status quo going. And the status quo was because the religious guys had life all figured out. They knew how much they had to compromise with the Romans in order to have a pretty soft life. They didn't totally give up on God, but it was shaped by the political realities. And what they didn't want was some guy riding into town and upsetting the balance that they had so carefully prepared. They were worried that Jesus would mess up the sweet system they had with the Romans. And I wonder about that for us. I wonder sometimes that we're worried that what if Jesus comes into our lives and messes up our life? What if he messes up our dreams and desires? What if he upsets the apple cart? What if he breaks the status quo? Will we have to put him first? And will he change our lives in crazy ways? I found a poem a while back by Wilbur Rees. And it, to me, is just a very challenging poem. It goes like this. I'd like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep. Just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. And I think that poem says an awful lot about where the religious leaders were and sometimes where we are with God. When we're just hoping God will come and add to what we've got and not change things. But if the leaders wanted the status quo, the people wanted something completely different. The crowd wanted a king. They wanted someone who was going to take care of the Romans once for all. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches. And they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. When you have Romans ruling and you have Herod as the puppet king, to greet someone else as the King of Israel takes a lot of courage. But the crowd wanted this king. They wanted this Messiah that God had promised throughout the Old Testament. They wanted someone who would free them from the Romans. The one who would make Israel great again. And they tried to crown Jesus once before. If you remember back when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, at the end of that story comes this very interesting piece. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus 
knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And the crowd wanted a king. And I think sometimes we today are guilty of this as well, that we want a political leader in our God. We're looking for a political God, the God who will be the God of our political party, whichever one that is. We see that clearly in the States, but man, it's true of Canada too. The only question is which party is the Baptist one? Alexander Mackenzie, our second prime minister, was a liberal, but he was also a Baptist. John Diefenbaker, the conservative prime minister, was also a Baptist. And Tommy Douglas, one of the founders of the NDP party, was a Baptist minister at our church in Weyburn. So God is God of which party? Not sure that God really plans on joining one of our political parties for the next election. You remember Joshua, when he took over from Moses, was about to lead the people into the promised land. And he had this strange encounter. When he was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And sometimes we try to force God to take sides in our political realities. And God comes to us and says, neither. I don't serve a party. I come as the commander of the army of the Lord. I come as king of kings and lord of lords. So the leaders wanted everything the way it was because it was good. The people wanted everything changed because they thought it could be better. James and John just simply wanted power. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two of the disciples, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And that's often the way we approach God, isn't it? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Last year at this time, we were looking at Jesus Christ Superstar, if you remember that, and we're here last year. And there was a song the disciples sang at the Last Supper. Always hoped that I'd be an apostle. Knew that I would make it if I tried. Then when we retire, we can write the Gospels, and they'll all talk about us when we've died. And James and John, trying to, I think, cut out Peter, and maybe Andrew, his brother, came to Jesus and says, we want power. We want personal glory. We want to be somebody when you come in your glory. And I wonder if, Part of what we want from God is that he would give us that recognition as well. But maybe that's a little bit too cynical. Maybe it's a little bit more like Thomas. What Thomas wanted, you remember doubting Thomas. Thomas wanted a cause to believe in. Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is a hard cat to read. I don't fully get him. But he wanted a cause to believe in. He wanted a philosophy, a belief system. When it seemed like it was all over, he figured, well, might as well throw in the towel and go all out. Thomas is the one who would doubt. For him, faith was not enough. It had to be provable. 
And for him, it wasn't about relationship. It was about ideas and purposes. And I wonder about us. Is our understanding of Jesus a personal relationship? Or is it a system of belief? Is it a set of rules? Things we do, things we don't do. Things we must believe, things we can't believe. Maybe we're looking for a cause to believe in more than a relationship to experience. The fifth one was that woman who was bleeding for all those years. 14 or so years she was bleeding and no one could heal her. And she comes and touches the edge of Jesus' robe. And it says she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. This is a woman who had this medical condition for a lot of years. She was incurable and she knew it. But she knew that Jesus could heal her. And she risked everything to go up and touch him. And she got her healing. She got what she wanted. What's interesting in that story is it ends right there. Often in Luke, if someone comes to faith, there's a story of a meal or some kind of a, a process afterwards. But really, that's where the story mostly ends. It's not a story of belief and relationship. It's one of needing a miracle and a miracle worker. And we know we can be that way. We want God to heal us or to give us power. We want a special touch of God. Now, we're more spiritual than the crowd with our demands, but we're desperately willing to receive. In fact, we are disappointed, deeply disappointed, if we don't receive what we ask for. We get frustrated when our prayers don't get answered. We want a God who will do miracles for us, who will give us our earthly wants, and in a book by J.B. Phillips called Your God is Too Small, he talks about some of the images that we carry in our heads about God. And one of them he talks about is this idea is God is a heavenly bellhop. And I don't know if a bellhop resonates anymore, but that's the guy that in the hotel picks up your bags and carries them to your room for you. You kind of snap your fingers and they jump into action. And I think that's what many of us see with God what we want most out of God is a God who's going to hear us and go forward. That every prayer request will be answered. But the final one, the one that I think we're working towards, is Mary. Mary and Martha. Not Mary Magdalene or Mary, the mother of Jesus. Lots of Marys. No, this is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the siblings. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served, and Lazarus was among those reclining at table with him. And then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet. And the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. You know, of all the people in the gospel story, it seems to me Mary is the only one that doesn't want anything. All she wants to do is worship God. She wants to spend time at his feet and she wants to anoint him. And I think this worship for her covered three things. The first one was she was willing to wait and spend time with God. 
Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. I always say that when you see these three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they're always in the same position. Martha is always working. She's the Martha Stewart. Lazarus is always lying down. He's reclining a table, or he's dead, but he's always lying down. And Mary is always at the feet of Jesus. She's always the disciple that listens, who spends time with him. And worship begins in spending time at the feet of Jesus. There's no shortcut that allows us to worship God without spending time. But she doesn't just wait, she listens. It says she sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. And I think Jesus must have been frustrated beyond belief by the fact that the disciples never seemed to listen very hard. They didn't seem to understand what he was saying half the time. And she is the one that socks about that she listened to what he said. And she heard what others didn't hear. She heard the message that Jesus so often tried to say. She heard him talk about his death. And because of that, she gave. She took this pint of expensive perfume and anointed him with it. And Mary's act of worship flowed out of her time with God. The time she spent at the feet of Jesus, the time she spent listening, led her to bring this gift of oil. And she anointed Jesus because she heard what no one else heard. She heard him say he would die and rise again. And so she anointed him. This week we're going to go through Good Friday where Jesus dies. And we're going to come to Easter Sunday where the women come to the tomb to anoint him. And a lot of women are going to be there, but one is not going to be there, and that's going to be Mary, this Mary. Mary Magdalene will be there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, will even be there, but this Mary won't. She's conspicuously absent for some, well, not unknown reason, for a very obvious reason. She knew that Jesus wasn't going to be there. She knew there was no reason to go with all the spices to prepare his body for death because... When she anointed his feet, she was criticized. And Jesus explained her action. He said, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. In other words, Mary knew she would never have the chance to anoint his dead body before the resurrection. And so she anointed his living body. Which brings us to us. We started this morning by just asking that simple question, what do you want from God? And we've looked at what all these other people want, and maybe in some of their wants, we've seen some of ours. And where does it leave us? Well, here's the question. Is our greatest desire to worship God? If it is, then we will spend time with Him. We will listen to Him. We'll give ourselves to Him. And the way we do that is the measure of our worship of Him and our love for Him. And then we'll receive many of the other things as well. We'll experience that freedom from sin, that freedom from shame, that freedom from guilt. We'll discover His peace. He will meet our needs as we pray for our daily bread. And as we enter this Holy Week, my prayer for each of us is that this may be a week of sitting at Jesus' feet. Each day this week, as Tyler told us in the announcements, we're going to have a reflective meditation on the meaning of Holy Week. 
I'm going to invite you, if you want, in the evening to sit down and to watch that with a family. We would normally do it at 9 o'clock when it's dark out. But whatever time is best for you, take time this week to spend time with God. I invite you to take time each day to sit at the feet of Jesus, to listen to him, to hear what he says as he speaks to us. And this Palm Sunday, I invite us to a fresh commitment to spending time with God, to being the Mary who waited, who listened, and who gave her life to follow him. Father God, this morning we just thank you for Palm Sunday. We thank you for Jesus riding into Jerusalem. We thank you for what this Holy Week will have for us. We thank you for the promise in the darkness of Good Friday. And we thank you for the joy in the light of Easter. And Father, we pray that what we would want of you is that we could worship you that we could bring you the honor that you're due. Father, we pray that you would just slow us down this week, that we would be able to spend time like Mary at your feet, that we would hear you afresh. And Father God, we pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth this week. For we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.